This episode is brought to you by the much-needed donations from the members of the Best of the Left podcast. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Colbert Report, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, The Mother Jones Podcast, and Ring of Fire. This week, the House voted to deny the federally funded group ACORN any more money. ACORN staffers have been fired, and the group, which provides assistance to low-income families, is now conducting its own internal investigation, all prompted by a sting conducted by two young activists, James O'Keefe, playing a pimp, and Hannah Giles, posing as a prostitute, who taped ACORN workers offering advice on how to cheat the system in five different cities. Their incriminating videos were posted on the conservative website, biggovernment.com. Let me make sure there's a code for it, okay? A code for prostitution? Okay, let's see what we got here. Performance art, independent artists. You can be there. The Daily Show's Jon Stewart had harsh words for the mainstream media. You're telling me that two kids from the cast of High School Musical 3 can break this story with a video camera and their grandmother's chinchilla coat, and you got nothing? So what is the role of the mainstream media here? They didn't break the story, but they could contextualize it, describe ACORN, its function, and yes, even its role as a political lightning rod since the election. But mostly what we get is the tape, which definitely is news. But it's news generated for a political purpose, and its trajectory into the mainstream media has followed a pattern that has found much success in the Obama era, to wit... An independent conservative blogger digs up or generates a piece of information, real like the acorn story or imagined like the doubts over the president's citizenship. It gets picked up by a bigger conservative site like the Drudge Report or WorldNet Daily and jumps from there to Fox News, which covers it relentlessly while tweaking other news outlets until they pick it up. Here's Fox News's Glenn Beck. Fox has had 133 reports on it. CNN and 90 MSNBC 10 How's that possible? Hey, ABC, how's it working out for you with two? From the birthers to the tea partiers to town hall disruptions to past actions by former green czar Van Jones to past remarks of Supreme Court nominee Sonia Sotomayor, stories of varying import and validity are lofted into the headlines pretty much the same way, ripped from the blogs. In this month's Atlantic magazine, writer Mark Bowden traces how Sotomayor's off-the-record comments were run on every TV news outlet without much, if any, context. He explains precisely what she meant, which couldn't be discerned from the snippets, and his frustration is palpable. Frankly, Brooke, one of the things that really surprised me was that, to my knowledge, none of the major news organizations went back and actually listened to those comments in the context in which they were offered, because it doesn't take a great deal of time to see that those snippets presented out of context misrepresent her point of view. So cast your mind back to one of the first blog-generated controversies when uh, Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott was at Strom Thurmond's birthday party, and he expressed regret that uh, Thurmond hadn't won the presidency when he ran much earlier in his career as a segregationist. Is this what you would consider, in your words, news as ammunition? I think to some extent. From my memory of Trent Lott in that instance, I I think that too much was made of that comment, weighed against the balance of his public life. What I lament is when I see large news organizations basically forfeiting their journalistic role and handing the platform over to political activists. In the case of Sotomayor, or I would argue in the case of Trent Lott, fairly viewed, I don't think that you had something that was anywhere near the consequence that it was being given by being broadcast out of context repeatedly. I think the design of the political operative is to draw the largest possible inference from these specific episodes. And I think it's the role of professional journalists to put these kinds of things in perspective. 
What do you make of the fact that after the Van Jones resignation, Fox's Sean Hannity declared that they were going to systematically go after and take down every one of Obama's quote-unquote czars? And their next target was Cass Sunstein, who is the administrator of the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. On Thursday, a story appeared on WorldNet Daily quoting Sunstein as saying, it's desirable to give American wealth to poor nations. Well, I think what you're seeing is what I'm lamenting in this essay in The Atlantic, and that is when major news organizations are replaced by people like Hannity or by websites that are advocating a particular point of view, you live in a world, sort of a ping-pong world, where facts are shot in one direction or the other, and, and you're, as the viewer, sitting there turning your head from left to right to left to right. We are young. Tonight, more in our continuing investigation into the witch hunt against the community activist group ACORN. The corporate roots of that witch hunt, its boldly dishonest tactics, and its ultimate dislocation from the warranted facts. The ongoing effort to destroy and demonize ACORN has been led for the most part by conservative media outlets. And its biggest accomplishment so far has been the decision by Congress last week to strip ACORN of all federal funding. The Defund ACORN Act of 2009 passed through both houses of Congress with big bipartisan support. That said, one problem with the Defund ACORN Act is that it appears to be really, really unconstitutional. In, in, in constitutional terms, the Defund ACORN Act has what's called a bill of attainder problem. Don't worry if you don't know what that is. Um, it's one of those things from constitutional law that sounds really obscure and impenetrable, like the Commerce Clause or the Privacy Penumbra, but it's actually sort of easy. Um, in Article One of the Constitution, it says bills of attainder are banned. And that just means that you can't pass legislation that directly targets one individual or one specific group of people. In this case, the Congressional Research Service looked into the Defund ACORN Act of 2009 to see if it specifically targets anyone, and of course they found probable cause that it does. So there's a good possibility that this legislation, which Republicans are so excited to be touting, which they've even gotten all this Democratic support for, there is a good chance that it is really Article one styly unconstitutional. It's embarrassing. They're going to want to run on the anti-ACORN platform all the way to 2010 if passed as any prologue. So what to do? How to save? How to salvage the defund ACORN Act? Well, they're going to need to make sure that it doesn't violate the Constitution as boldly as it seems to now. So where the defund ACORN Act says it's going to cut off funding for an organization that's, that's ever been indicted for breaking campaign finance laws or that's ever filed fraudulent paperwork with any state or federal agency, if this is going to be constitutional, that can't only be enforced against this one group. can't only be enforced against ACORN. It's got to be for everyone. So giant government defense contractors, Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman? Looks like you're out of luck. Um, Lockheed Martin has been forced to pay at least $68 million for getting caught 11 separate times committing government contract fraud. Northrop Grumman has had to pay around $500 million for getting caught nine times for contract fraud. Sorry, guys, but if we're going to nail ACORN here, you got to go. And if, and if fraud is going to be the new issue in our newfound enthusiasm for defunding people, then Blackwater's going to have a problem, too. In just one of Blackwater's many government contracts, they were recently found to have defrauded the government to the tune of $55 million. And that's just one Blackwater contract, and they've got lots of contracts. But if fraud's not bad enough for you, how about murder? Because five Blackwater employees have been charged with murder during the course of their government-contracted duties in Iraq. Is murder enough to defund Blackwater? 
How about if the people they're killing, the contractors are killing, um, aren't, aren't just Iraqi civilians or somebody else we don't know? How about if they're U.S. troops? Because KBR, with its government contracts, is under investigation for killing 16 American troops who were electrocuted through KBR's shoddy work supposedly building and maintaining living quarters for our troops in Iraq. And okay, I mean, to be fair, I, I will admit that if we are talking about behavior by contractors that warrants them being defunded by an outraged Congress, none of those things I just described from those other contractors are prostitution specific, like the Republican and conservative media ACORN case has been ever since two conservative activists dressed up in pimp and hooker costumes and then went from ACORN office to ACORN office with a hidden camera until they got a reaction out of ACORN employees that would play well on Fox News. If the hidden camera stunt induced prostitution angle is what it takes to get a government contractor defunded, then I guess we're going to have to talk about prostitution broadly and the um, government contractor known as Armor Group, part of Wackenhut in Afghanistan. Their employees, you will recall, uh, were made famous earlier this month after the release of these pictures that show the contractors barely clothed and shooting vodka out of places you wouldn't expect. Uh, the same armor group personnel, who again were being paid by you and me, were also allegedly engaged in a prostitution ring in Kabul. That's according to an armor group whistleblower. The State Department is investigating armor group now. But if we're going to talk contractors and prostitution, we're also going to have to talk about DynCorp, which has always been one of those horror movie U.S. contractor cases. In the year 2000, at least 13 DynCorp employees were sent home from a U.S. government contract in Bosnia after they were found to be taking part in a Bosnian sex slave ring involving underage girls. Not a fake prostitution ring that never actually existed, like the one in the activist hidden camera costume stunt, but an actual forced child prostitution ring. And actual U.S. government contractors from DynCorp. In the absence of any defund DynCorp uprising, DynCorp still gets a lot of government money. In fact, today, DynCorp landed a brand new $230 million contract with the U.S. Air Force. That's on top of the $915 million contract they got from the State Department in June. Armor Group, the prostitution-slash-vodka-shooting contractor in Afghanistan at the Kabul Embassy, they've still got that nearly $200 million contract in Afghanistan with the State Department, though that is currently under review. Blackwater still has multi-million dollar contracts with the State Department, the Defense Department, as well as the CIA, even as five of their employees face murder charges. KBR was just awarded a new $19 million Army contract in February, despite being investigated in the deaths of those 16 U.S. troops. Not only have these contractors not been defunded by outraged members of Congress, they all continue to get spectacularly lucrative government contracts, even after all of these things have been exposed. I'm not reporting any of these things for the first time. They're all known. So sure, if you want to defund ACORN, go for it. ACORN has definitely done some indefensible stuff over the years. They are an imperfect organization to be sure. But if this isn't just a witch hunt against ACORN, if Congress is actually just going after government contractors who commit fraud and worse, then we can all look forward to the explanation from the fake outraged Republicans and the cowering Democrats about why nothing ever inspired them to defund anyone before ACORN. After that, by all means, cut them all loose. Joining us now is Jeremy Scahill, correspondent for The Nation and author of the New York Times bestseller, Blackwater, The Rise of the World's Most Powerful Mercenary Army. Mr. Scahill, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. I apologize for being a little hot under the collar about this. I'm riled up by this story. Everyone right. should be. Yeah. Um, if, miraculously, the defund acorn language survives as it is, are defense contractors at all worried about Congress actually cutting them off? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, look, the, the, the fact of the matter is this. The Democrats, and there were a lot of them that voted with the Republicans on this. In fact, only 75 Democrats voted against this defund ACORN Act in the House, and only a handful of senators voted against it on the other side. The fact is that some of the best Congress people on the issue of war contractors have never come forward and introduced a defund Blackwater Act or a defund DynCorp Act. Claire McCaskill, who actually has been a pit bull on the contracting issue, she voted in favor of defunding ACORN and yet hasn't proposed legislation to go after any of these war contractors. Look, Rachel, as you know, this is political. This isn't really about upholding the law. On the one hand, you have an organization that registered 1.3 million people to vote, 400,000 members, works with the poor and working class people of this nation. They don't have lobbying power in the form of massive campaign contributions. On the other side, you have 600 war corporations right now on the U.S. government payroll. You want to know an actual election scandal? 25 to 40 cents on every dollar 
dollar we spend on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, two and a half billion dollars a week. That money goes directly to these war corporations who in turn contribute campaign dollars to the Republicans and Democrats who continue to fund their operations. That's the real scandal here. The thing that is, um, I think, frustrating about the ACORN story, and that's, I think, part of the reason that I do have this sort of unexpected emotion about it. I mean, we talk about a lot of outrageous things all the time, but I'm really, um, the story really grabs me. It's the reason we're going to be doing it for a few days. It's because there's, you, you, ACORN doesn't have to be a sainted organization. They don't have to be perfect in order for what's being done to them to be an outrage. And I guess I'm trying to contextualize them against other contractors in order to understand whether or not their sins ought to be being discussed before the right. sins of organizations like Blackwater. Okay, let, let's, let's look at this. If there ever was a moment where there should have been a standard where individuals should have been held accountable for the crimes of others. It would have been the Bush folks when it came to the torture program. It would have been Eric Prince when it came to the operations of Blackwater. What we're talking about here in the case of ACORN is $53 million in federal funding over 15 years that largely went for low-income housing, poor people housing. Uh, and on the other hand, you're talking about an equivalent amount of money that Halliburton got every single day for its operations in Iraq. That Blackwater may have to repay the government for not living up to the terms of just one contract. The fact of the matter is that ACORN got pennies compared to what these massive war contracting firms got. And as you point out rightly, we're, we're talking about murder, we're talking about child prostitution, we're talking about all sorts of misconduct against American personnel and against innocent civilians. The crimes of ACORN, if there are those that are litigated in a, in a court of law, pale in comparison to the crimes of the war contractors that go unconfronted by Democrats and Republicans. Do you see Democrats um, changing their mind on this? We saw such huge Democrats votes in favor of these Republican defund ACORN bills. Do you see that? Do you think that that sentiment is reversible among Democrats? Well, look, if, if, if Representative Alan Grayson of Florida is, is the only person who's going to come forward and say, yeah, let's go after it, let's defund all these criminal organizations, and the rest of the Democrats, like Claire McCaskill, did it as part of a witch hunt against ACORN, then it's a sad day in this country, because what it means is there is no spine in that Congress when it comes to standing up against the real crooks and criminals in this society. It's an outrage. Jimmy Carter. Is he Jewish? Check the list. Okay. Carter's criticized Israel, kissed up to Castro, but now he has really stuck his peanut in it. Jim? I think uh, an overwhelming portion of the intensely demonstrated animosity toward President uh, Barack Obama is based on the fact that he is a black man. Ridiculous. We all celebrate Obama's historic presidency. Some of us just disagree with his policies. That's why we refer to him as that boy, or uppity, or make posters like this, or send emails like this. That, that is clearly about agricultural policy. And I suppose Jimmy Carter thinks these remarks are racially biased too. The health care bill is reparations. It's the beginning of reparations. Obama's entire economic program is reparations. If I were Sharpton, I said, no, he's going to take from the rich. He's going to take from the rich. He's going to give it to you. Those guys aren't racist. They're just saying a program that helps the poor is actually a secret plot by African Americans to steal white people's money. <laughs> A racist would say it's a secret plot to steal white people's women. Now again, again folks, this is just about Obama's policies. And there is a black man that agrees with me, Bill Clinton. I believe that while it is true that some of the most extreme 
uh, opponents of President Obama may also still have racial prejudice. I believe that 100% of them that are opposing him now would be against him if he were a white Democrat. Exactly. Their policy objections aren't influenced by their racial prejudice any more than a bullet is influenced by a gun. <laughs> Once you pull the trigger, that thing is on its own. <laughs> but sadly, anytime a racist criticizes the president, someone cries racism. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately, there's a solution, and it's tonight's word. Blackwashing. Now, folks, everybody knows I don't see race. People tell me I'm white, and I believe them because I get pretty good service at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and no one values black people more than I do, except perhaps North Carolina Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who prefaced a speech critical of Obama's health care policy with these words. In a recent article, conservative commentator Thomas Sowell, an African-American, examined some of President Obama's claims about the health care reform legislation. Sowell writes that in his joint address to Congress, President Obama is wrong about the spending levels of his health care reform. See? Congresswoman Fox is proving she's not a racist by pointing out that an African-American also disagrees with the president. Because what better way to prove you're not a racist than by highlighting a fellow critic's race? See, black people, black people are handy. They allow us to criticize the president without being accused of racism. The same way Jews can tell Jewish jokes and the Irish can tell Irish jokes. You see, having, having an African-American on your side whitewashes, or in this case, blackwashes your racism. Unfortunately, unfortunately, 97% of African-Americans support the president's policies. I'd say that's the real racism, which kind of makes the president the real racist. Right, Glenn Beck? This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy who has a deep-seated hatred for white people. This guy is, I believe, a racist. Now, Glenn's criticism might seem racist, but fortunately, Glenn himself is getting cover from the number one black guy, Barack Obama. Just listen to White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs. The president does not believe that the criticism comes based on the color of his skin. Thank you. I wish more African Americans were like the president, raised by white people. But that, that may not be enough. After all, even Barack Obama almost always agrees with Barack Obama. So, we need to find a way to ensure a reliable supply of African Americans who will blackwash our criticism. Now, the obvious answer is to steal black children from their parents so they can be raised by racists. But, good, good luck. Good luck getting that passed by a Democratic Congress. So, that, unfortunately, only leaves one answer. Shoe polish. It's the traditional way for racists to show they have nothing against black people. So, tea partiers, birthers, Glenn, Rush, don't let your valid criticisms be unfairly associated with racism. Before the next time you accuse the president of having a secret plan to take white people's money and give it to black people, or broadcast shuck and jive imitations of African-American leaders, just put on a little blackwashing. Then, people will hear your real message. The members of the Best of Left podcast are the wind beneath my wings. Their donations of as little as $5 a month are what allow me to keep this show on a steady schedule twice a week instead of just once as it has been in the past. 
In return, members receive access to the Best of the Left Raw feed, where they receive all of the clips that end up in the show, plus bonus material that doesn't make the final cut. And content in the Raw feed is delivered in its original video format when available. If you appreciate the service that this show provides, please consider signing up for a membership at bestoftheleft.com. And finally, some in the media are wondering if corporate journalists aren't paying enough attention to conservative activism. After weeks of obsessive and misleading commentary, Fox News host Glenn Beck stirred up so much of a ruckus about White House Green Jobs advisor Van Jones that he resigned his post. Next came the so-called 9-12 protests in Washington, inspired to some degree by Beck, where right-wing protesters aired their grievances against the Obama White House, that is, when they weren't questioning his birth certificate or comparing him to a Nazi. Next in line, right-wing activists shot undercover video of visits to local offices of ACORN, the National Community Organizing Group, where some staffers apparently gave genuine legal advice to a couple who claimed to be running a prostitution ring that, in one case, involved underage girls. The question on the table, then, have the liberal media ignored these newsworthy events? In the Jones case, Washington Post reporter Howard Kurtz chastised the press for missing the boat. But because something is an obsession of Glenn Beck's doesn't make it news. Jones was a staffer at the Council on Environmental Quality, not exactly a high-profile government agency. And under the Bush administration, a staffer in that same agency was forced out when it was revealed that he was editing climate change reports to make them more industry-friendly. While that scandal involved someone's actual government work, it got only scattered media attention. We don't recall folks like Howard Kurtz complaining about the media blackout. The Politico raised some of these same questions about whether the mainstream media were missing out on these important right-wing scoops. But they're asking the wrong question. These stories are of minor importance and have actually received major attention in the media. So the question really shouldn't be why the mainstream media missed them. Rather, the question should be why the petty obsessions of right-wing pundits have to be big news at all. I just want to see you when you're all alone I just want to catch you if I can I just want to be there when the morning light explodes on your face it radiates I can't escape I love you till the end Let's go to the debacle that is Pat Buchanan. Uh, you know, we've known for a long time that Pat Buchanan has uh, questionable views on race. Uh, he certainly proved that in the Sonia Sotomayor confirmation process as he kept attacking her for being a Latina woman and how he was absolutely insistent that there had to be a white man who was more qualified than her. And in fact, he dismissed all of her qualifications because she was a Hispanic and said ah, she had to be selected only because she was a woman and Hispanic, not because of her overwhelming qualifications, but Pat Buchanan has done this over and over again, uh, but now he's really taking it to a new level. In an article he wrote on his website, Did Hitler Want War?, he makes the argument that poor old Adolf Hitler didn't want World War II at all, that it was the Allies and the British that pushed him into it, that it was our fault and not Hitler's fault. You think, come on, <laughs> I saw that headline, I said, God, there's no way. That is such an unbelievable, outrageous claim. He couldn't have possibly written that. All right, here we go. First, he says, 70 years ago, uh, on September 1st of 1939, uh, Germany, a German army crossed the Polish frontier, and then Britain declared war a couple of uh, days later because they had an alliance with Poland. He says, six years later, 50 million Christians and Jews had perished. Now, that's a small side note. I don't want you to concentrate too much on it. But notice he says, 50 million Christians and Jews had perished. You know that six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. It's a subtle way of him saying, remember, 44 million Christians were killed. Okay. And there's nothing wrong with reminding people, yes, of course, a lot of people died. But already you're starting off on a kind of a questionable note there as to why do you need to remind us uh, of that, right? Okay, but don't put that aside. It's not a big deal. All right, here he goes into his main uh, argument. He says, look, Danzig, the uh, town that... Uh, uh, Hitler wanted in Poland was so small, it was the size of Ocean City, Maryland. And 
You know, what was the big deal? It was mainly 95% German anyway. They should have just given it back to the Germans. Uh, well, how about when he went into Czechoslovakia? Well, you know, that had to be split up anyway. Besides, the Sudeten Germans were happy to be returned to German rule. Here, I'll give you an exact quote. The Sudeten Germans were returned, returned to German rule as they wished. Okay, so he says uh, Czechoslovakia was just fun and games. It had to be split up anyway. And then he, you know, he wanted to take the Czech thing as a kind of a frontier, a little buffer zone, if you will. And then in Poland, of course, he was going to take the part that belonged to Germany. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm already, I can't believe this, right? But then he takes it over the top. He says, well, look, he wasn't ready for war. He didn't have the strategic bombers and the submarines that he needed. Britain wanted the war. They pushed him into it. And look, it... They didn't have to back up Poland. They should have just let Germany take the small part of Poland and the small part of Czechoslovakia they wanted. They would have stopped there. All right, here's some quotes. If, if, he, he says, if Hitler wanted a war, quote, why did he offer the British peace twice after Poland fell and again after France fell? Because he wanted to hold that territory and trick them into thinking he didn't want more? I mean, you want to talk about appeasement? That's the definition of appeasement. Why, these are quotes, why when Paris fell did Hitler not demand the French fleet as the Allies demanded and got the Kaiser's fleet? You understand? He's saying that Hitler was more munificent than the Allies, more generous. Was Hitler not merciful? Was he not merciful? He didn't even take the French fleet. Look at what the poor Allies did to the Kaiser. Uh, he continues, why did he not demand bases in French-controlled Syria to attack Suez? Why did he beg uh, Benito Mussolini not to attack Greece? <laughs> Man, here it comes. Because Hitler wanted to end the war in 1940, almost two years before the trains began to roll to the camps. You see, if the Allies hadn't dragged the war on, Hitler wouldn't have done the Holocaust at all. Before the trains rolled into the camps, he was ready to end the war and just keep a couple of countries in Europe. If the poor, you know, if those, you know, despicable allies hadn't goaded him into it. Um, you want more? Here's another quote. Hitler had never wanted war with Poland. <laughs> How on God's green earth can you claim that? When you started the article by acknowledging that he rolled the German army into Poland 70 years ago today. It's a curious way of not desiring war with a country, rolling your army into them. Britain, whose empire he admired and whom he had always sought as an ally, he said he would not have attacked if Britain had not attacked him. He admired Britain and sought them as an ally? In, on which planet? I mean, admiration might be a different question, okay? Sought them as an ally. And what, like he sought the Soviet Union as an ally before he stabbed them in the back? Am I the only one here that's, that's like, how is this guy on MSNBC? How's this guy on television? I mean, this is literally a Hitler apologist. Look, I, I don't want to dampen historical speculation or research, etc. If he makes a case for, you know, Danzig is 95% German and the Sudetenland, this part of it was German, and he wants to, you know, go around the edges there and make some interesting arguments. But this isn't around the edges. This is a full-blown, poor Hitler got dragged into war by the Allies, mainly Britain. And uh, he would have stopped, and he wouldn't have done the Holocaust. And because Britain and the, and the Allies, meaning us, uh, you know, uh, we came into the war later, of course, but, you know, we were encouraging that, apparently. Uh, we dragged uh, Hitler into causing 50 million deaths. Now, remember, most of those were Christians. <laughs> when is enough enough? Okay, when do you say this guy is not a legitimate part of the debate and the discussion in this country and that we can't have him appearing on a, you know, mainstream news channel pretending to have mainstream opinions? I mean, this is madness.
interrupted all of us on Sunday. President Barack Obama, looking to further sell his plans for health care reform, visited five separate Sunday morning news shows whilst never leaving the comfort of the White House Ethan Allen document burning room. Now, usually when you see the same celebrity on multiple shows, they either have a new movie coming out or they deeply, deeply regret the incident in question. But with Obama, it was a health care junket. There he is going through the motions with ABC's George Stephanopoulos, CNN's John King, CBS's Bob Schieffer, and NBC's David Gregory. The only nod the president gave to each network's separate demographics was when he sat down with Univision. Seemed like a very obvious and contrived pander, but I'm sure he knows what he's doing. But you know what's interesting? The press bitterly complained about a lack of access to President Bush. Well, this president is now making himself available to the most influential television journalists in the country. I wonder how that change will play amongst influential television journalists. Does the White House run the risk of Obama overload? Is the president overexposed? Do they worry at all about overexposed? No, they don't. You could say maybe he's overexposed. He is overexposed. Or is the question, are we never satisfied? Are we professional yentas with time to kill, but none to reflect? Uh, two things. One, being on five Sunday morning news shows doesn't risk overexposure. The overwhelming majority of Americans at that time are either in church or sleeping off something they should be in church for. I think those five shows have a combined viewership of 10 million, with an average viewer age of around 10 million. So, if Obama's overexposed, Ryan Seacrest and Tom Bergeron are translucent. <laughs> Two, the president is not an action figure. We live in a democracy, not a Star Wars convention. When you take the president out of its package and play with it, it doesn't lose value. <laughs> you know, there's even an inside-the-beltway name for the technique of all-out media exposure. He's going to do what we call in Washington the full Ginsburg. 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 Coincidentally, also the least athletic move currently allowed in competitive ice skating. When you, when you, when you, when you throw out your back while you're putting your skates on. The Ginsburg! Actually, the full Ginsburg refers to Monica Lewinsky's lawyer, who in 1998 became the first person to appear on all Sunday morning talk shows in one setting, and that was 11 years ago. Of course, former great communicator Ronald Reagan's speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, believes the full Ginsburg to be beneath the presidency. The media environment allows a modern leader to be something subtly damaging, and that is boorish. They get their face in your face every day, all the time. It's boorish. Only a cad or ripscallion would flout protocol with such churlish impunity. Perhaps I'll leave you with only this. Ronald Reagan never twittered. You've been noonened. All right. By the way, the president doesn't just risk ruining his reputation with the public by exposing himself to journalists. Apparently, there's another danger. But does he run a risk also with the media? We can be kind of a fickle bunch here. Does he run a risk of, quite frankly, upsetting some of the media? I mean, we are thin-skinned and superficial jackasses. <laughs> Coming up next, should Obama be in better shape than us? I mean, isn't that arrogant? <laughs> so that's how the journalists feel when Obama sits down with them. So I guess they're happy when he decides not to sit down with them. The White House uh, has issued a statement this weekend about its decision to exclude Fox from the Sunday Blitz. They are the biggest bunch of crybabies I have dealt with in my 30 years in Washington. And I and I work at Fox News with a grown man who can't stop crying. Oh, I'm not crying. No. There's just a little bit of dust in my eyes from the path that you made when you said you goodbye. I'm not weeping because you want the heat to hold my hand. For your information, there's an inflammation in my tear gland. I'm not upset because you left me this way. My eyes are just a little sweaty today. They've been looking around and not searching for you. They've been looking for you, even though I told them not to. These are tears of sadness, the tears of joy. I'm just loving.
Let's move on to Wingnut Watch this week. It's been a particularly crazy week, it seems to me, between the Newsmax columnists calling for a military coup against Obama and the Facebook poll um, sort of pondering his assassination. Uh, Is the rhetoric around Obama significantly different in your eyes than what we saw with Bush? Kevin, let's start with you. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is to a degree. You know, the Facebook poll you can write off. I mean, that's just one random guy, and, and you know, you find those people everywhere. The Newsmax thing is, is a little more disturbing. I mean, Newsmax is a pretty, uh, you know, is a pretty wild site, and, and it's printed some pretty pretty strange stuff in the past. But, yeah, this, you know, seven days in May kind of thing is, is, is a, a, a leap even for them. But it's... Um, you know, the difference is that there were a couple of things. I mean, there were a lot of lefties who, who didn't like Bush. They compared him to Hitler. They did all that kind of stuff. I mean, that, that sort of stuff we've seen on both sides. But, you know, it took a while with Bush. I mean, it wasn't really till after 9-11. It wasn't until we started getting into, into the, the summer of 2002 when he was going into Iraq that the attacks really started. The attacks on Obama started immediately. And what's more, it's not just a bunch of bloggers, a bunch of commenters, uh, you know, a far-right, you know, loony news site like Newsmax. Uh, you know, it's coming from the, the chairman of the Republican National Committee. It's coming from senators. It's coming from congressmen. The, the, the loony bin stuff happened immediately, and it's coming from the top as well as from the grassroots. So, yeah, I think it is different. And I do wonder about the trajectory of the rhetoric. David, do you think that we're going to see it ratchet up as his presidency continues, or will we reach a point where well, I there's guess a plateau? They, I guess they could call Obama the great Satan, <laughs> join in with the Iranian mullers. Um, but I, I don't think there's much further for them to go once they get to the stage of suggesting a military coup d'etat against the president. You know, I was the guy who, during the Bush years, wrote a book called The Lies of George W. Bush, which, you know, he defended then and they defend today. But, um, and, you know, yes, it was indeed calling the president a liar. But it was after he was in office several years, and I had, you know, what I thought was plenty of material to, to prove the, the point. Uh, I don't remember, you know, I'm sure there was you know, there were some lefties who were calling Bush and Cheney fascists, but they weren't out in the streets holding pictures with Obama made to look like Hitler. You didn't have you know you know you, you know I don't think it'd be like Michelle Bachman calling you know, the, the you know Republican representative from Minnesota calling for an investigation of, of the other side for being anti-American. I mean, there is a certain sort of you know. Uh, don't call it irrational anger, but really beyond the pale anger that that has almost nothing to do, I think, to some degree with with what Obama does. It seems to be more about what Obama is. I think there is a racial component to that, but I don't think that's all of it. And I think that, you know, uh, that that whatever he does, you know, allows people then to sort of go after him um, in their own mind. But, you know, prior to the election, he was being, you know, uh, criticized for being a socialist, you know, and being pounding on with terrorists. And as somebody, I went to these rallies, you know, with McCain and Palin supporters, and they really acted as if he was an enemy of America, at least the America they know. So I think there, you know, there, there's a tremendous, you know, you know passion of, 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 of a negative passion, passion of hatred on, on the right, and it's not going to calm down and you know it is going to ratchet up and it remains to be seen though whether it will have any political ramifications there are always you know you know 15 20 25 percent of the country that is very conservative and a lot of them are you want to call them wing nuts whack wackos or whatever you want to do and um you know is that number expanding or are they just becoming more free thanks to Glenn Beck and the internet and other things to express their true feelings and then we really won't be able to see uh, to what degree they have any political significance until the um, you know midterm elections almost a year from now still crazy after all these years still crazy I'm not the kind of man who tends to socialize. I seem to lean on old familiar ways. And I ain't no fool for love songs that. 
Let me ask you something. Uh, this uh, Glenn, I can't. We always end up talking about Glenn Beck because mm-hmm. I guess because you're like the Glenn Beck I, expert. I, I am. I am one of the nation's leading Glenn Beck experts. He's, he's getting the key. Here. The key to the city. What friggin' city? I know. Okay. So, what so, so, what so is this? Since we last talked, Pap, uh, the Glenn Beck crazy train is still chugging full steam ahead. Uh, but I, before we get going, I actually want to start out by wishing you and all of the Ring of Fire listeners happy Glenn Beck Day. Oh it's yeah, it's, it's it's actually Glenn Beck Day. Uh, we surround them. Uh, yeah, but actually the the town we're, where we're here and there he's getting the key to the city. Exactly, in the town where Glenn grew up, which is uh, Mount Vernon, Washington, uh, the mayor there, a guy named Bud Norris, he declared uh, September 26th to be Glenn Beck Day, mm. uh, and you celebrate Glenn Beck Day by uh, wearing tea bags on your ears and uh, bursting into tears and inopportune moments throughout the day. Yeah, uh, and, and, and actually, taking a lot of narcotics. Exactly. Uh, lo- yeah, of, yeah. Yeah. Like. Yeah, totally. And and so the mayor, he gave uh, Glenn the key to the city. Uh, Glenn's going to use it to sneak into people's houses late at night and, you know, go cry in the corners of people's <laughs> homes while they're trying to sleep. Yeah. And again, for someone who hates the government so much, Pap, as Glenn supposedly does, you have to wonder if Beck is actually okay with this. I mean, the event was at McIntyre Hall, which is, is actually a, a county facility. I mean, and did mm. taxpayer funds actually mm. pay for his key to the city? Isn't this – you know, I look at this as a real success story. I mean, in any other world, this guy would be on Thorazine <laughs> counting his toes in a padded room with Big Nurse not far away. It is a but, testament but, to the American dream. It is, it? absolutely. So so Roger Ailes says, you know, <laughs> we're going to give this guy an opportunity. and. I mean, you gotta love that. I mean, about is this guy is look. He's a he is what we call a burn down. I mean, in this exactly. business, a burn down is a Michael Savage who you know he's passing through. It's just a matter of when. It's he's a burn down, a total burn down. Totally. And and you realize you realize that Roger Ailes knows that. Oh yeah. That this guy's time is now. The guy that doesn't understand this is David Von. You know this 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 David Von Drill who did this ridiculous. The time. The, yeah. The time article. The, hell was that about? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you saw it. People know uh, Glenn was actually on the cover of Time magazine last week. And it, seriously, man, the piece was as is, is embarrassing of an article as I, I you're know. ever going to I'm surprised they didn't yank this guy as a writer. I mean, what in what is happening? You should have his credentials stripped from him. It's like, it's so pathetic. It, it, just, it completely ignores... It's, it's, it's gushing. It completely. But was it was it a news piece? Oh no, no. It's 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 a fluff piece. A hundred percent. He completely ignores all the ugliness that Glenn spews on a daily basis. It, he frames the whole the whole Glenn his whole issue is about this left right paradigm. And so like whenever he doesn't say anything about you know Glenn calling Obama a racist, saying he has a deep seated hatred for white people. He doesn't even mention you know uh, him joking about Nancy Pelosi being poisoned. Mm. It, it, any it, to, to the writer, any criticism of Glenn, none of it is actually legitimate or true. It's all coming from a, a left point of view, uh, which is you know automatically skewed because we're liberals. That's yeah, the only exactly. Could yeah, ever this, have. this don't you can't you just see this David Vondrill? He is a, t- a typical, typical airhead, mm-hmm. elitist liberal. I mean, that's what he is. I mean, you see these guys all the time. They're so afraid of being, uh, of, of, of this perceived liberal bias. Exactly. Liberal this, is, this, is that they overcompensate to the fact that, uh, to, to the point where it's, it's ridiculous, where there's no fact anymore. And they, if they were to even dare mention any of the, the, the horrible things that he said, they'd be accused of being a, a smear piece. Exactly. Rather than saying the obvious, this guy dances around it, try, actually ends up making look, you know, Glenn Beck look like a hero. Exactly. Because He's, he is the he is the classic dimwit liberal totally. that killed the Democratic Party yes. for so many years that I thought was disappearing. Maybe they're not. I mean, oh, you know, they're, def- they're definitely not, unfortunately. Yeah, and and this guy is exi- this David Vondrill is Exhibit A for the fact definitely. that this airhead elite liberal, this I don't know what 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 the hell are they? They're concept wogs or what? <laughs> what are they? I mean, it's like they it's like they show up 
have shown up for years, you know, with a knife when they're supposed to show up for a gunfight. Exactly. Yeah. And, whole... and so this guy is this guy embodies all that. You know, and you can I'll just take a look at the article. It's right. unbelievable. It is. It's really ridiculous. Actually, on another just a side little fun note here. This week on his uh, TV show, Pap, uh, Glenn actually pretended to boil a live frog. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I you saw that he actually had this like pot of boiling yeah, of water on his set, of and he actually had a box of of live frogs, and he's talking about how the whole the whole like when the water heats up slowly. You don't notice, notice it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> and then he pretends to drop a frog in boiling water. Yeah, it's and, like Mr. Green Jeans talking to a bunch of brain dead shut-ins. Exactly. There's actually this story in Salon that came out this week um, about Glenn's days as a top forty because uh, he actually got to start as like as a teenager as a top forty morning zoo DJ. Right. That's actually where he got to start in radio. Right. And I this know. is actually Pap. I'm going to post it on the Ring of Fire website. There's this old video from 1986, and it's Glenn and his like morning drive time partner, and they're like doing the zany morning zoo radio commercial. It's like with Glenn and Tim in the morning, and Glenn, he has this like horrible 80s haircut, and Pap, seriously, this monkey comes swinging into the commercial, and then he sits on the desk between him and this partner. I'm, I'm going to post it on the website. It's one of those surreal moments that you have to Is Glenn see. one of the guys that used to jam uh, firecrackers up or up frogs' butts? And, <laughs> I mean, is, yeah. is, this, is this kind of, does it give us a little bit of insight to it, that? It, actually, to give a little more insight, there's actually the story in the salon piece of, uh, so Glenn actually had a, a rival DJ at one point, uh, and he actually, um, he called the rival DJ's wife on the air, and the woman, Pap, she had just like three days ago had a miscarriage. And I swear to God, this is a true story. Glenn actually says to her on the air, so we uh, hear you had a miscarriage, and the woman says yes. Glenn then jokes on the air about how the rival DJ can't do anything right. He says he can't even have a baby. It's a sample of just how... how yeah, this is the guy and, that, that a, a journalist for Time Magazine... Mm -hmm. This David Von idiot drill. That, he, again, I, I can't, I can't say this enough. He yeah. is a classic, a classic, almost caricature. Oh yeah. Of the liberal elite fools that are left in in media journalism. I mean, he he is the embodiment of that. Well, he also he ignores the full point about like so. I mean, this story, this story, the, the, the Glenn Beck part of this, I'm less infuriated by than this the, David the Von drill. The, the mainstream le legitimizing Beck. And legitimizing what he's saying and ignoring these parts. Yeah, I. I and I Time Magazine probably has done nothing to say. You know, let's rethink this David Von Drill. Mm -hmm. so, but shouldn't somebody write some letters? Shouldn't but somebody say, "Are you freaking kidding me?" Yeah, you'd hope you'd hope that maybe they'd have a little bit of decency and and and, and again revoke his his press pass oh, and his, uh, his writing privileges. Yeah, but there, there's plenty of places where they could have uh, at least pointed out some of the things, like you know Beck always railing against uh, the Wall Street bailout and saying how he's furious at Bush for starting. Them. And that's all well and good, except for the fact is there's actually tape from 2008 for his show where he Beck's saying that Bush's bailout is not only necessary, but the right thing to do. Yeah. But that's the problem with, with this Beck character. He, I mean, I'm telling you, the guy needs to be on Thorazine. He is a burn down. It's just a matter of time. The problem with Beck and the problem, again, with the media not calling out when he contradicts himself and, 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 and the hypocrisy of when he says one thing and then does the other. I'm not growing up, I'm just getting down And I stepped in line to walk amongst the dead Oh, I put these rings on me And now I'm feeling like a soggy dream So close to drowning but I don't mind I'll be inside this mental cave Throw my emotions in the people, democracy in this country is under attack by the very leader we democratically elected to lead us. <laughs> Ironic. That's the makings of a great M. Night Shyamalan movie, if he still made those. <laughs> but now we're fighting back. You've all heard the sordid tale of Acorn, how a couple of their operatives were caught giving tax advice to an ersatz prostitute pimp. Disturbing. <laughs> How disturbing? 
Acorn is known to be a criminal organization. This is probably just the tip of the iceberg. We don't know, though, if this is just the tip of the iceberg. It is undercutting our very democracy. The point is, whether it's the tip of the iceberg or not, it's ruining our democracy. We have to cut off their funding, which we did. Problem we don't really understand, solved. <laughs> now that all of our pimps and prostitutes have to play by our nation's tax laws, unless, of course, they get lobbyists, which can... We cannot allow ourselves to get complacent, for the face of tyranny has many orify. <laughs> I give you phase two. The artist blogged that the White House and the NEA were steering artists toward creating works on contentious political issues such as health care reform. My God. <laughs> Obama has bypassed the bully pulpit, national media, NASCAR, pro football, to use an army of federally subsidized artists to help propagandize his socialist agenda. Brilliant. <laughs> Just wait till the people... See my upstairs neighbor Marcy's one-woman interpretive dance piece entitled, Actuarily Speaking. <laughs> She's really sweet, but it makes no sense. <laughs> I can say that because she doesn't watch TV. I guess the NEA shouldn't have done it. It was a stupid thing to do. But in the scheme of things, unless someone of note in the government elevates this to a real scandal, like Senator John Cornyn, who was calling for congressional hearings on the politicization of the NEA, good for him. Wait, what was his position when they called for hearings and subpoenaing Karl Rove into the politicization of the Justice Department in the attorney firing scandal in 07? What did the now Republican senatorial campaign chairman think of that? When we cross this line into basically a political witch hunt led by the chairman of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. But, you know, it's funny how everyone hates witch hunts, you know? <laughs> Until they see a witch. Witch! <laughs> Orrin Hatch supports an inquiry into the NEA. And nor should they How about be, an inquiry uh, into torture? Well, they shouldn't investigate that part. And nor should they be uh, prosecuting people who acted under good faith. With torture! Now, with regards to publicly funded papier-mâché hope cows. <laughs> but again. But again, all of this is small potatoes compared to what is now occurring in our schools. Boy, I tell you, this, wait, wait until you see this. This is a video that came out from uh, B. Bernice Young Elementary School in Burlington, New Jersey. It was shot earlier this summer. A teacher is leading a group of small children as they practice a song. sounds creepy when little kids sing it. Alright, so that's one school in New Jersey. Obama had nothing to do with it. It occurred during Black History Month, just after the inauguration. It was part of a program saluting other presidents as well, and parents were notified of the lyrics beforehand. And there were no complaints before the show, during the show, or after the show. I believe I've set everything up for the appropriate level of panic. Indoctrination of America's youth is caught on tape. It's like Havana Elementary School. It was reminiscent of 1930s Germany and the indoctrination of children to worship dear leader. A new indoctrination video. To recognize this person not as an office holder, but as almost a savior. And then post it online. That's the scary part. It's, it's the most dangerous it stuff I have ever seen. They were brainwashing my child. The principal of this school received death threats. You're forced to send your kids here. It's wrong. My, and by the way, this is, this is children we're talking about. This is just pure Cameroon stuff. You know that twit who's nearly run out of 24-hour news networks to appear on is right. It is...
It is absolutely fair to compare some kids in New Jersey singing a few lines about Barack Obama in a public high school to the execution of one quarter of a nation. <laughs> the Khmer Rouge. But I guess it's not that much of a leap. I mean, if you can brainwash kids to sing a song praising the first African-American president, you could probably convince them that President Bush and FEMA did a great job during Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> Bush and FEMA people across our land together have come to rebuild us and we join them hand in hand. <laughs> Kids are stupid. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I, I actually have some exciting news today. As all of you know, The Best of the Left has both a Twitter feed and a Facebook fan page. These are both great places for you to go and just be kept up to date on anything I might have to say. Um, the big news, however, is that both of those services are now about to become actually useful. I know, it's exciting, and I'm, I'm excited about it myself. Up until last night, both my Twitter and, and Facebook pages, uh, which, by the way, basically mirror each other as to you know what's being said on, on either, were essentially there to post about the fact that there was a new show available. The very, very irregular comment might have been posted, sometimes a question was posed uh, looking for some insight from, from listeners on a particular thing, but really not very much. But now, I'm very excited to say that I've decided to make these services actually useful in the hopes that more people will sign up and uh, take use of this new service, and um, and that you'll tell your friends about it, and so on and so forth. I'm, I'm very excited to expand my network on, on these two services, but I'm willing to work for it. So what I'm going to do is just start posting a lot of the great material I come across during my regular searches for material for the show. Many of you know that a while back, you know, I mean, it might have been a year ago now, it was quite a while, that I had the idea for the Best of the Left blog, and it was going to be the companion, basically, to the podcast in that... We would post videos and pictures and articles and, you know, whatever great best-of-the-left-style material we came across on the internet and post it on the blog. And the fact was, it was just a lot of work. And that's the only reason we're not doing it today, is, is just way more effort than I could afford to spend um, on that project. But, as many of you know, Twitter and, uh, and updates on a Facebook fan page are essentially just a micro blog and so as you might imagine it takes a relatively micro amount of time to post to them so that's what i'm going to be doing and i sincerely hope that you if you haven't already uh, sign up to take advantage of that i have been in the social networking arena long enough although i entered it a little bit kicking and screaming i've been in it long enough that i kind of know what to do and what not to do and what's irritating uh you know i'm not going to post too much and just uh it's not going to be an avalanche of information that you just end up tuning everything out and i'm going to keep it regular so that it's not being posted to so infrequently that you kind of forget it's there altogether so i think this is going to be a good service for you and i sincerely hope that if you haven't already uh sign up and, and check it out i you know twitter or facebook or both whatever you prefer uh, all the updates will be going to both. I hope you'll find it interesting and informative, uh, so much so that you tell all of your friends and neighbors they have to sign up as well and introduce them to what I'm doing. Of course, as many of you will remember, this is actually a shareware podcast. Harkening back to the days of shareware software, the show itself is technically free, but you're really expected to pass it on or give back in some way. So if you find the service that the show provides useful, that's great. All we ask is that 
you turn around and tell five or ten or fifty of your closest friends about it and let them know how informative and entertaining it is and that they should check it out for themselves. Which brings me to, of course, the other way you can support the show. Members to thank today, Ben P., who signed up on September 23rd, and Jessica P., coincidentally, uh, who signed up on August 28th. Another couple of stellar members who both signed up above and beyond the Call of Duty. Uh, The minimum membership is a measly $5 a month. People, I mean, you probably wouldn't even notice the money is missing, Uh, but both Ben and Jessica went above and beyond and signed up for uh, slightly more than the minimum just to help support the show. And Ben went ahead and signed up for a full year membership in advance, which is great for everyone involved. I mean, he saves a little bit of money. If if you're planning on being a member, you want to support the show into the future, go ahead and sign up for a yearly membership. It's a little bit cheaper and a much smaller percentage of your money goes into the hands of the PayPal goons in the form of their payment fees. So just a real sincere thanks to both of them and all the members who help support the show. They're the ones who are keeping this show going twice a week. You know, this show has been in existence since January 2006, but only with the financial help of the members have I been able to stabilize the show into a really consistent twice a week program that can be depended upon, can be uh, consistently updated and consistently up to date all because members and the occasional donors of the show are helping to make this a part-time job for me. So I just absolutely can't thank them enough. They're they're making a, a dream come true that I get to do this and make enough money to uh, supplement my income enough to survive. Now finally, just a quick reminder about the podcast awards. One more week of nominations. If you haven't nominated the show yet, please do so. Go to podcastawards.com. The Best of the Left is running for the best produced podcast and for the political category. And if you're feeling up to it, help out our friends over at the Young Turks and nominate them for the People's Choice Award. Okay, so that is it for today. Stay connected with the show and, as of yesterday, become incredibly well-informed about the world around you by signing up to follow Best of Left on Twitter or by becoming a fan on Facebook. You can support the show by leaving reviews in iTunes, voting at Podcast Alley, nominating at the Podcast Awards, and by filling out the listener survey, all of those linked up on the website. The show is available on your smartphone at stitcher.com. You can visit the show notes on the blog to find links to all the sources and the music used in this episode. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks to the members and donors from bestofleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.